Today, this morning, I have the wonderful, joyful task of... Uh, I, I was so excited when I found out I got this topic. Um, I get to talk about having an eternally right relationship with God. I get to basically do the gospel today um, in our Sunday school class, which is one of the most important, uh, not one of the most important things you will ever work through. It is the most important thing um, that you have to understand is the gospel. I remember a number of years ago, I was sitting down with somebody um, a veteran of the faith, and uh, we were having a discussion. And I said, "Do you know what the gospel or what is, define the gospel for me?" And I kind of got this stunned look, like oh, it, it's just it's the gospel. And I'm like, "Well, what does that mean?" Well, I and and they had a hard time defining. It. I know they know it, but they had a hard time defining it. And um, and that's what we're going to do today. Um, before we go anywhere, because this topic is so important, we need to go before the Lord and ask His blessing on our time together. So let's go before the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to gather again as your people, as your chosen people who who worship you, a God who not only came down to this earth and died, but that the same God rose again from the, from the dead and sent his own spirit to indwell us. There's no greater joy to be called your sons and daughters, to be those who have been ransomed, who have been purchased by your blood and who have been given eternal life to be a given an eternally right relationship with a holy God in, whom, in whose presence we would never be able to enter. So Lord, in our time together this morning, we pray that you would give us soft hearts to hear your word and to overflow with joy and thanksgiving for all you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. One of the things as believers, we never should get tired of ever reciting the gospel to ourselves. Um, as you know, we're going through Think Biblically. Um, the, this book, my chapter is chapter 5, having an eternally right relationship with God. Um, we've talked about sin, we've talked about um, science, we've talked about worldviews and everything. All of that really means nothing if we don't get the gospel right. Um, and as believers, once you get saved, we don't stop learning the gospel and enjoying it. Um, a book I would recommend, and I don't know, has a, a gospel primer for Christians ever been used in BTI? Anyone? No? Okay. Um, I don't know what the BTI book list is. This is one of the most wonderful books you could ever get your hands on. And I don't know exactly how to get your hands on it. I'm sure if you do a Google search, you can. I know it's a great... What's that? Amazon has it? Okay. A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. A phenomenal, phenomenal book that is for believers to remind themselves daily of the gospel. And he goes through what that means and what that is. What is the gospel? And just this constant 
constant. I've, I've gone through this a number of times. This book is marked up and, and penciled in and, and everything. It's beautiful, beautiful. A gospel primer, not primer, primer, like the old uh, for Christians by Milton Vincent. And it's a super easy read. As you can see, it's not long. You kind of do like a chapter a day kind of thing, and they're like four or five pages long. They're, they're super easy to read, but they are packed with a lot of wonderful content. So, A Gospel Primer by, for Christians by Milton Vincent. Obviously, an authentic Christian worldview hinges on that right knowledge of what the gospel is. And so we're going to look at, primarily today, the text of 2 Corinthians 5. So you're going to need your Bibles um, for 2 Corinthians 5 is where we're going to begin. And we're really going to camp out most of our time in. 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 18 through the end of the chapter, 21. I'm going to read that for you right now. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice carefully that Christ's main role in coming to the earth, what word is, is, is here over and over again? What was Christ's role? Reconciliation. The gospel is about reconciliation. Christians are blessed and commanded to engage in that reconciliation as well. Um, consider a few fundamental truths that are either uh, assumed or explicitly implied or stated in this passage. Every person is fallen and therefore needs to be reconciled to God. God himself accomplishes that reconciliation and he does it through Christ who was perfectly sinless. It says he knew no sin. He made atonement for other sins by exchanging of his righteousness for their sin. In other words, he was made sin. He took other sin on himself and what? He bore the punishment for them. And he makes believers righteous through their union with him. Although God is the offended deity, he is the very one who seeks and and initiates also our reconciliation. It is all of him. He does not take pleasure in the destruction of sinners, like some of us sometimes do, unfortunately. But we make an appeal to the whole world through the Christian message, imploring sinners to be reconciled with him. All of that is the very essence of the gospel message, is this message of reconciliation. To be a Christian, therefore, you have to be reconciled to who? To God. 
there, there's just no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You have to be reconciled with him before you can be reconciled with anything else, with, with anyone else. Um, the term reconciliation is practically the, the full theme of Christianity. That is everything. It, everything hinges on, on that one point. That is why the gospel of reconciliation is always at the heart of Paul's preaching, including here in First Corinthians or in Second Corinthians. But in First Corinthians one, he says this: "And for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of His power." What was Paul's primary concern? His primary concern was always for the purity of the message of, of reconciliation to the to to adults to to the uh, or to. Uh, to manipulate that message, to to not have a pure message, to to put his own slant on it was was something that was diminishing the gospel of his power of of its power, and we see people do that all the time. I've got to make this a pretty package. First of all, the gospel is not a pretty package. You have to confront people with their sin. <laughs> you can't entertain them into heaven. Um, Reconciliation. People need to know that they need to be reconciled to God because they are his enemy. Plain and simple. God has called every Christian in this passage to be an ambassador of that message of reconciliation to the world. He doesn't give anyone an out. He calls everyone to be an ambassador. In fact, he uses that word in 2 Corinthians 5. In verse 20, he does. Um, this is a noble, multifaceted Greek phrase, uh, term, the word ambassador, which relates to usually the term elder. Um, thus, the term ambassador carries the idea of someone who is mature and stately normally. In ancient times, old and experienced men were usually the ones chosen to be ambassadors of the king um, or the emperor, but the dignity and wisdom, uh, because of the dignity and wisdom that they brought to the task before them. But this does not mean that only the guys who work in the pastoral office <laughs> or the elders of our church or the deacons or the people on the missions committee or or anyone like that, they are not the only ones who are responsible to be ambassadors. On the contrary, Paul is writing to everyone in the church of Corinth, some of who were very spiritually immature. Um, and he's telling them all, you are to be ambassadors. You are supposed to be mature in your presentation of the gospel. No matter where you stand in your understanding of it, you, this is one thing I always, we always say to people in, in evangelism. You knew enough, people are always afraid, well, what if I get asked a question I never, I'll, I, I won't understand? Well, you knew enough to turn from your own sin and repent. You know the go enough of the gospel because you are saved. Otherwise, you wouldn't be saved. <laughs> Um, if you did not return and repent from your sin. So don't be afraid of that. You need to be bold with being an ambassador of the gospel. 
A good ambassador does not make up a message on his own authority. He is commissioned to carry someone else's message and to deliver it faithfully. He's not alter, authorized to alter the message in any way, and he can't adjust it to fit his own personal preference. He cannot embellish it with his own opinion. He speaks for a higher authority. This is any ambassador. An ambassador of the king does that. An ambassador of God especially has to do that. By the same token, to score or mistreat an ambassador is to insult the ruler for whom that ambassador speaks. To send him away is to break off relationships with the government that he represents. An ambassador is essentially his ruler's mouthpiece. He never offers his own promises or demands his own privileges. Rather, he speaks on behalf of his government. His only authority is derived from his head of state, and to reject the ambassador is to reject the one who sent him. That frees us up to evangelism because it's not you being rejected. As ambassadors for the kingdom of God, Christians live and serve in an alien world. We are no longer citizens here. We are citizens of a higher kingdom. Paul says believers come with the authority of the king representing the kingdom of God. Is that not amazing when you think about it? We represent a kingdom that we technically have never been to yet. It's wonderful. This perspective ought to shape our worldview as Christians. We are ambassadors of God, commissioned by him to proclaim a message of reconciliation to other fallen creatures. If we examine 2 Corinthians 5 a little more closely, more wonderful truths come out of this ministry, and it kind of frames the gospel. If we want a brief summary of what Christianity is all about, we, we, 2 Corinthians 5, is one of the best places to ever take somebody to, to understand the gospel. And there are four monumental truths about the reconciliation promised in the gospel. First of all, the very first truth that we, are, that we see in 2 Corinthians 5 is that sinners are reconciled not just by God, but by the will of God. It is God's will to reconcile people. Reconciliation was conceived and initiated solely by God. It says all this is from who? From God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. All this here at the beginning of the passage um, refers to the truths Paul had set forth in verses 14 and 17. The transformation describes there described there as conversion, salvation, everything connected with the new nature and new life in Christ. This is entirely from God. Sinners themselves cannot merely decide to be reconciled to God. They have no power to satisfy God's wrath on their own towards sin. They have no power to satisfy his holy justice or his perfect standard of justice. They can't even change themselves on their own. Uh, we sing that, um, that one hymn, uh, Jesus Paid It All, um, and it has, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. I can't change the leper's spots. Leper or leopard. There's always debate on what is, what's the one in that hymn. 
Historically, it's leper, (laughs) just so you all know. There's a little hymnology lesson for you. The word reconcile here means to change or to exchange. That is what what reconciling is. The exchange involves nothing the sinner accomplishes, but only what he embraces. Stated another way, reconciliation with God is not something sinners accomplish when they decide to stop rejecting God. Instead, it is something God accomplishes when he decides to embrace sinners who repent and believe. He had to be willing to remove the guilt of sin. Whenever we find the language of reconciliation in the New Testament, God is always the initiator of the activity of reconciliation. He is the one who removes guilt. He is the compassionate Savior. If he did not do any of this stuff, we would have nothing. We would be lost and dead in our sin. God made reconciliation possible. How? Entirely through Christ, through his son. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself? Why? Why? Because Jesus Christ is the only mediator who could stand between God and man. Why could Jesus be the only one? He's the perfect sinless one. Yeah. I know I'm not sinless. I was visiting a friend this week um, in Las Vegas. I didn't know. Uh, there's churches in Vegas. I know. Hard to believe. Um, and and I, it was just, it struck me so much. One night, he's like, okay, I need to at least drive you down the strip. You need to go kind of see what's going on. I'm like, I don't need to. He's like, yeah, well, so we just drove. And once we got through it, that, what is it, mile and a half, two mile? I don't even know how long it is. Too long. That's all I know. But all I could see was people needing to be reconciled to God. It's so deplorable and disgusting. It it really is. And, And it's heartbreaking. And you can only imagine... How it grieves the heart of God to see um, a place that revels in its sin, that it names itself after it. God is the only one who can reconcile people to himself because Christ is the only mediator because he is the only sinless one. And it's hard to judge those in Vegas because our hearts are just as wicked and evil. Therefore, Christ had to die as a sacrifice, had to die on our behalf for all those who believe. He paid the price of their sin, and he paid the price of our sin. His death was the most, MacArthur calls it, magnanimous expression of selfless love in the universe that the universe will ever know. I love that phrase. Enough that I'll repeat it. His death was the most magnanimous expression of selfless love that the universe will ever know. An infinitely holy God extended his love towards sinners to such a degree that he gave up his own son in an ignominious, I don't even know what that word means, ignominious. Okay. Thank you. See? really shows I didn't know what it meant. Ignominious death to bear the punishment sinners deserved. 
It's amazing. It's, it's, and that is the, the transformation. That is the reconciliation being described in 2 Corinthians 5. And that's what's taken place. The entire New Testament makes it clear that it was God who called, God who sent his son, and God is the one who saves. All the glory goes to who? Me, I made a great profession. <laughs> no, all glory goes to God and God alone. I remember having a conversation one time with my mom and dad, actually, and we were in a restaurant and, and the waitress went by and we said, you know what, the, the reason we give her the gospel is not so that actually that she is, has a better life and, and, and even that she is in heaven eventually and, and, and worshiping Christ. The reason we evangelize is because that gives God glory. And God is glorified through our waitress's life should be, she be saved. It's not that she gets it easier now and everything. That is a benefit, and that is one of the, the wonderful bonuses that comes with reconciliation. But it is all for the glory of God because he is the one that accomplishes every bit of it. There's nothing on our own. But one of the other truths, the first one, that God is the one, it's by his will that we are reconciled. But the second one, sinners are reconciled by a decree of justification. Reconciliation involves a legal decree of forgiveness for sins. God does not admit sinners into his circle, into, the, into that circle of blessing that he has when leaving them guilty and unstained. He absolves them of their guilt and imputes to them a perfect righteousness so that they stand before God completely guiltless, robed in a righteousness not of their own. Second um, Corinthians 5.19 makes the reference to this. It says, in Christ, was in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's justification. That's justification in a nutshell. The only way sinners could ever be reconciled to God was if the sin that separated them from God was no longer an issue that they had to deal with because they cannot deal with it. Sin had to be dealt with and not counted against them and God graciously and mercifully did that by means of of justification. It's important to understand justification is a legal term. It's a legal decree. It's not a process. It is something that is pronounced. It is instantaneous. It is happens in a moment in time. It's not a drawn on thing. Other parts of sanctification is something that goes on and on, but justification is a declared righteous right now moment. It happens instantaneously, the very instant the sinner savingly trusts in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That is when it happens. That person is immediately forgiven of all sin. Unlike what some religions say, where you have to, now that you're saved, now you've got to just do all this kind of stuff and, and, and bring it along. No, that's not it. You are immediately saved. You are immediately justified. You are immediately declared righteous, and your trespasses are taken care of. Of course, experientially, we will not achieve complete righteousness and total perfection until we see Christ and are finally glorified. 
We see that as evidence in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 13, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 John 3. But we who believe are fully justified right here, right now. That's a great, great liberating truth of the gospel. Even in all our flawed and feeble attempts to do anything, those works of righteousness, they... But because of Christ's perfect true righteousness, we are, are credited now with an eternal account of being forgiven. 100%. The phrase in 2 Corinthians 5.19, he's reconciling the world to himself, interjects a complicated and difficult, sometimes debated issue into the matter. This is what some people will say, well... It says he's, he's reconciled the whole world to himself. So some people like to take that as, well, everybody's going to be saved one day. Some people just are going to take a little bit longer. And this is just kind of this one big ecumenical, all roads lead to God kind of thing that some people try to, uh, hell is not an eternal place, that kind of stuff. That is not what is being stated here. When he says he's, he, he reconciled the whole world to himself, this does not mean that everyone in the world is going to be saved without exception. That one day even, even Hitler or Mussolini or Nero or all these people are going to be saved. No, no. Um, why do we know that that's not what he means? Because the rest of Scripture doesn't say that either. What the world means here is more qualitative than quantitative. Um, if I were to say something like, after service today, the whole church is going out for ice cream. We're all going to doors. All right? Wouldn't that be nice? Well, I would say the whole church is going, but is every single person here necessarily going to be going? No. No. You all should, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not paying, though. Um, <laughs> but uh, the whole church, not every single individual here is going. It's a, it's a qualitative, though, not a quantitative uh, thing. When he says, through him, he's reconciling to himself the whole world. What, what is that quality that he's talking about? He's reconciling all nations, all tongues, all tribes, all peoples. All those will be represented in heaven. All of those he is reconciling to himself. He's not reconciling every single individual that walks the face of the earth. The rest of Scripture does not let that be possible. That is impossible when you look at the rest of Scripture. And that's the same thing you see in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. He loved it. I love this church. I don't know every single person in this church to the point where I can say, I just love you. <laughs> but I love this church, just as God loves the world. Um, it is in that sense that Christ died to reconcile the world to God, not counting their trespasses against them. He does not guarantee or even intend salvation of all people without exception. But he's calling out from all of humanity a believing remnant, drawn from every nation, every culture, every ethnic group, um, that is what Paul means when he speaks of the world. He chose that word deliberately. Not a word in Scripture is, is insignificant. And it's not to signify that salvation is universal, but to emphasize that it is not limited 
to one specific people group. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to Jews who, are, who think they've got the exclusivity on all of this. And he's saying, no, 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 no. God loves the world. Of course, Christ's sacrifice is infinite in its worth and value, abundantly sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. He could, if that had been God's design, but we know that many will not be saved. Therefore, it twists the meaning of verse 19 to suggest to some have that some have that no sinner anywhere has any need to fear retribution for sin. And clearly, it is not the world in general whose trespasses are not counted against them, but the trespass of many will be counted against them in the final judgment. So the world that is reconciled is the world of those of us who have been justified. That once instantaneously declaration. The third point, our sinners are reconciled through the obedience of faith. Um, Who are the justified ones? Those who believe. Simple as that. Those who are justified are those who believe. Faith is the instrument of justification. Faith does not merit justification, though. It is not the ground of our justification or the reason for our justification. Faith itself does not constitute the righteousness by which we are justified, but faith is the instrument by which sinners lay hold of justification. Righteousness is imputed to them, is given to them, is, is, is put upon them by faith. We know that from Romans, several places in chapter 4. But faith is, therefore, what the gospel demands from us, from, from our hearts, from, from those who hear the gospel. Faith is what it demands of us. 2 Corinthians 5.20 speaks of the gospel call to faith. Paul says, Therefore we are what? Ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. What? Be reconciled to God. What must people do to be reconciled to God? Scripture answers that question over and over and over again. Probably the clearest one is Acts 16 verse 31. What does it say there? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what? You will be saved. Or King James, you shall be saved. You and your household. So when we plead with God to be reconciled, when we plead with people to be reconciled to God, we are calling them to faith in who? In Christ. In Christ. Faith is such a key Uh, player in this whole thing. That plea to be reconciled to God is in no way contrary to the truth of that we've already noted that that it is all completely of God's will. These aren't things that are that that hit heads and and don't work together. Um, God is completely sovereign. God declares that act of justification. It is all his work, but at the same time, reconciliation does not occur apart from a sinner trusting wholeheartedly in Christ's atoning work by faith. Faith itself is not the sinner's work. Faith itself is given by God. He sovereignly draws those whom he elects or chooses to to faith in Christ, and yet all of us are commanded to do something. 
All of us are commanded to repent and believe. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign in salvation, but just as plainly, it teaches that sinners are responsible for what? Their unbelief. They're responsible for their sin. We're not exonerated from that unless God jumps in and justifies us. Because what? Unbelief is a willful disobedience. So we are called to obedience through our faith. Charles Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, uh, trying to combine that idea of divine sovereignty with, with man's, uh, with human responsibility. This is what he said. If I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these truths Two truths can never contradict each other. I do not believe they can ever be welded into one upon an earthly anvil, but they certainly shall be one in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them furthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge. And they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth doth spring. I love that. We won't comprehend it this side of eternity. But they don't contradict each other. But God in his sovereignty has ordained that. And we won't totally understand it. Um, No one has ever been excluded from the plea to be reconciled to God. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Um, The Apostle John wrote, But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of who? Born of God. Scripture closes with the invitation um, in Revelation twenty two seventeen, it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take, take the water of life without price. There is always that invitation. We do not know who God has chosen. Every believer has the privilege and the duty to proclaim the gospel to sinners and to urge them, beg them, implore them on Christ's behalf to be what? Reconciled. If you need a key word for today, it's the word reconciled or reconciliation or any form of that word. But faith has an objective content. One must believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he is Lord. But the ultimate object of truth faith is not merely a doctrinal statement. It is the person of Jesus Christ. That is the object of faith. Some people put their trust in doctrinal statements, in creeds, and all that kind of stuff. Those things help us maybe frame some of our thought, but never put your faith and hope and trust in a creed or in a doctrinal statement. Those are just, those are man-made. They are not inspired. Um, 
The call to faith is a call to embrace him as he set forth in the gospel. Faith, therefore, has a subjective side. It's an attitude that often gets overlooked. James 4, 8 through 10, describes the attitude that we are to have. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I've never heard Joel Osteen preach on that passage. The sinner must come before God. Recognize he is fallen. That he is a filthy, double-minded, miserable, wretched, blind man. And that sinner must plead for God's mercy, lay hold of Christ by what? By faith. By faith as the only Savior who can redeem people from their sins. Christ is making his appeal to men through who? Through us. His ambassadors, which Paul talked about earlier. And imploring sinners. Literally here he's begging them. He says begging them. Urging them to seek reconciliation with God through faith in Christ Jesus. Fourthly, sinners are reconciled because of the work of substitution. This kind of goes part and parcel with, with justification happening. The real heart of 2 Corinthians 5.18-21 through 21 is the glorious truth of how God brings reconciliation about and, and, and how it was bought and paid for. This passage shows us clearly, as any passage in Scripture, that Christ atoned for sins by becoming a substitute for sinners. Verse 21 sets forth this powerful biblical truth in an unmistakable term. He says what? For our sake, he made him to be what? Sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That one sentence is so incredible. It, it resolves for us the main difficulty of the divine plan of redeemed sinners. How can depraved sinners be reconciled to a holy God? It's here we learn it's through what? That substitutionary death of Christ himself. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Anybody know where Peter's quoting from there? <laughs> Isaiah 53, with that, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Upon him was the chastisement. Um, I don't even. I don't have Isaiah. I'm going off of memory. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement um, that brought us peace. Um, and with his stripes we are healed. With his stripes we are healed. Uh, we often sing of, uh, when we sing in Christ alone, um, as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on, on me. That's a contradiction, contradiction there. As he stands in victory, 
how, uh, why am I now brought in to stand in, with him? Because sin's curse no longer has a grip on me. That is a marvelous truth. When we sing a song like that, never lose sight of that. That substitutionary atonement that is being proclaimed through there. It is a marvelous truth when we think, I don't deserve. He is the one who conquered death and sin. I'm a miserable wretch down here. But yet, as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Whoa, for I am his and he is mine. I've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. That is a substitutionary, beautiful uh, understanding of, of substitutionary atonement. He bore his, our sins in his body on the tree, as 1 Peter 2 says. 2 Corinthians 5 contains four features that we're just going to quickly go through here that identify and summarize the significance of the work of substitution. The beneficiaries, the benefactor, the substitute, and the benefit. That comes, who are the beneficiaries? Okay, we can skip over the rest of that point. Those who put their faith and hope and trust and, and live obedient to Christ, those of us who have been saved, who have been declared righteous, that we are the beneficiaries. Who's the benefactor? The final word of verse 20 identifies substitution's benefactor. It is none other than who? God. It is God who's the benefactor in, a, in it. It is God is the one who designed and, and brought to fruition our reconciliation. He was the one who demanded a substitute. He was the one who chose our substitute. He was the one who ordained and executed the entire plan. Mankind has nothing to do with initiation, initiating that concept of substitution. It was all God. He's the one who benefits by it. He is the one who chose it. It was for believer's sake, however, that God planned it all. Only God the Father could ask his Son to become incarnate, to enter into the world, to humble himself, to take the form of a man, to be obedient unto death, even death on the cross, as Philippians says. Only God could decide how his infinite holiness, his intense hatred of sin, and the inflexible justice could be perfectly satisfied without destroying the sinner in the process of that satisfaction. In other words, God determined that he would propitiate his wrath. And although the price was inconceivably awful, he was willing to make that sacrifice. This is the gospel. This is so incredible. God acted as the benefactor in providing substitution for sinners simply because of his great love. Romans 5.8, that passage that we're very familiar with, God shows his love for us in that while we were what? Still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While believers were still his enemy, God reconciled them to himself through the death of his son. This truth is what makes biblical Christianity different from every other religion in the world. And it, it's what makes it so exciting to be a part of. Most other religions operate on the premise that God is what? Angry. He's harsh. He's out to get you. People try and paint Christianity like that. And some, unfortunately, there's some preachers who give that impression too. Um, 
God is an angry, hateful, uh, indifferent deity who could not care less about the prosperity of, of beings who grub around underneath him in this world. All of them teach that if God's righteousness is to be satisfied, it is the sinner himself who must what? Provide that satisfaction, who must bring about that reconciliation. If I can only please him. Therefore, the goal of virtually all religions is somehow to appease that God that they have created. Either they must um, placate another hostile and angry God through self-atonement, or their adherents imagine that they can please a benevolent God merely by being benevolent themselves. If people in those systems are going to be reconciled to their God or gods, little g's, by the way, they must do something. They must act out things. They must do some weird stuff. But the good news of biblical Christianity is you can't. <laughs> you really can't. Uh, it, God himself has already supplied on our behalf everything that is nece- necessary to appease him. He's done it through his son. He's done everything. You cannot. He is the one who has reconciled us to himself. Um, we are not left to work out our plan of reconciliation for ourselves or to obtain our own righteousness. It took death to pay the price of sin because, as it says in Ezekiel 18, the soul who sins shall die. That's every one of us. The soul who sins shall die. God made that abundantly clear throughout the Old Testament. There wasn't anyone exempt from that. The Jews spent more time of their lives either coming from or going to a sacrifice. Sometimes we have a hard time making here twice on Sunday. <laughs> but think, the Jews had a hard time. They had to go. They spent most of their time just traveling back and forth to the temple. They didn't have time for video games and, and Netflix and all that other stuff. They continually killed and offered animals as sacrifices, tens of millions of them over the centuries when you think about it. Why? They were dealing with sin. They had to. But the nonstop offering of those animals demonstrated what? That the wages of sin is death. That's the whole point of that. Believing Jews longed for that ultimate Lamb of God. And we partook of communion last week and, and sang of the Lamb of God, reflected on the Lamb of God, that perfect sacrifice. Essentially, that is God's own Son, Jesus Christ, and in His obedience to the Father's plan, fulfilling that longing. And Christ did so under no coercion, but willingly. In fact, what does Jesus say in John chapter 10? says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So we have the beneficiaries, the benefactor, now the substitute. I think this is pretty easy. The third feature of the work of substitution contained is to identify the substitute. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is not describing any normal, ordinary human being. I think we can figure out who we're talking about here. Still, the substitute had to be a human being because God required that a human must die for humans. The substitute could not be a sinful human being or else he would be dying for his own sin. 
um, unable to provide atonement for anyone else's. So the substitute had to be a sinless man. Um, the only way God could provide a sinless man as a substitute for sin was to provide a man who was also God. Because um, God alone is the only one who is what? Sinless and perfect. Um, Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So what does the phrase, he made him to be sin, mean? In view of the utter sinlessness of Christ, it clearly does not mean that Christ became a sinner. Be careful with that. Christ did not become a sinner and commit sins or break God's law. Jesus had no capacity to sin. He remained the sinless, eternal God while becoming fully human, fully man. And certainly it is unthinkable that God would turn him into a sinner. Isaiah 53 tells us a little bit of how to understand that Christ was made sin. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ was made sin how? By being made the substitute for sinners. That's how he was made sin. He bore sinners' guilt. He was punished for sinners' punishment. Simply put, God treated Christ as if he were a sinner by making him pay the penalty for sin, even though he was innocent. More than that, God treated him as if he were guilty of all the sins of all who would ever believe. That is remarkable. Sin, not his own, but ours, was credited and put and imputed on him as if he had committed it. And then he paid the price on the cross. That means that only... Or the imputation is the only means by which Christ was made sin. It was imputed on him. The Father poured out his full wrath, his full fury against that sin because it was laid on him. And Jesus experienced the full force of divine wrath. And I don't think we will ever fully grasp what that means. In other words, he paid an infinite price. And since we are finite, we will never understand. It, it's easy to understand when we think about that infinite price being paid, why he would say in Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was treated as a sinner. And, and then that time on the cross felt complete alienation from, from the Father. Although Christ was in practice and reality perfectly holy, God considered himself forensically, legally guilty. Anyone trying to achieve reconciliation by, with God by his own efforts, apart from trust in that substitution, is cursed. And there's a penalty associated with the curse of the law, and someone had to pay it on behalf of those whom God would redeem. 
Therefore, Paul declared, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Our sin was imputed to him so that he could pay for it, just as his righteousness now is imputed to us. Why? So that we could be justified and reconciled to the Father. In other words, God treated Christ as if he sinned the sins of everyone who would ever believe so that he could treat them as if they had lived Christ's perfect life. Well, what is the benefit? What is the purpose of all of this? Just to finish up. The purpose is so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Basically, that's the wonderful result sinners realize from justification. They have received a righteousness not derived from keeping the law, but laying hold by a faith by faith in Christ. It is a true righteousness that comes from God. So the righteousness God requires from the sinner is the very righteousness he provides for those who believe. When God looks at believers, he sees individuals covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And conversely, all their sins are eternally forgiven because Jesus what paid that penalty for them already. I just almost want to sing Jesus paid it all because that's exactly what it is. That's the gospel. That's the gospel there. All of that is reconciliation. We have a substitute for the glory of God to reconcile all men to himself. So if you were wondering what the gospel is, hopefully you understand it in a broader, wonderful context. That's why we never give up because that truth that we just talked about never should be old or, or we, something we take for granted or we grow callous to. It is something, the gospel is, it's so beautiful. It's the heart and soul of what we are. And therefore, never, ever get tired of reminding yourself of the gospel. The gospel is exemplified every time we take the Lord's table. And there's a reason God says, do this. Do this all the time. Because we forget. We easily forget. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, We thank you for the substitution he was on our behalf, that perfect, sinless one who came from heaven incarnate and took upon himself the sin and the wrath of the sin that we deserved and counted us as righteous. Thank you for declaring us justified, those of us who believe. Thank you for giving us the faith to follow you in obedience. Lord, if there is anyone here who has deceived themselves into thinking they understand the gospel and submitted and followed by faith in obedience to you, I pray that even today would be the hour, this would be the hour of salvation. For those who have flatly not followed after you and have change their hearts, Lord. By your will, would you break the sinner's heart and give, break their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. You've called all men unto yourself. You've called the world unto yourself. We look forward to that day when we will join with people from every tribe and tongue and nation to worship at the feet of the Lamb of God. What a glorious day that will be as it stretches into eternity. 
We pray as we gather now to center to the teaching of your word, to gather to worship corporately, that you would be honored and glorified, that we would be a pure and spotless bride that you have called us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.